Thank you, guys. It was great. We're in our Christmas sermon series called Christmas Perspectives. We're looking at Advent through the uh, eyes of others. Uh, we want to discover the identities, the thoughts, the actions, the attitudes of those people who participated in the first Advent, the first arrival of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to examine the perspective of Mary and Joseph uh, in a message called A Servant's Christmas. And so let's begin with Matthew 1, 18. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged, actually the word there is betrothed, to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in first century Israel, to, when you were betrothed as a couple, the betrothal period commonly lasted one year, sometimes up to two years. And the bride and the groom were officially pledged to one another, usually by their parents, sometimes by a family guardian who had arranged the marriage. And uh, the couple didn't live together during this time. In fact, there was very little contact, certainly no physical or sexual contact during that time. Uh, in, in some couples didn't even see each other uh, get to meet each other until the wedding day, even though they were betrothed uh, to one another. Mary was about 16 years old. Joseph was probably between 18 to 20. Uh, their genealogies, their family histories, are given for us in Matthew and Luke. And it, they indicate that both Mary and Joseph were of the line, the lineage from the house of David. And so they were distantly related as descendants uh, of David. Uh, betrothals were legally binding agreements that could only be terminated either by divorce or death. Uh, a betrothal was so binding that if a woman's uh, betrothed husband died, she was considered a widow, even though they'd never actually gotten married uh, or uh, even been together. So uh, Joseph and Mary, this young couple, 16, 18, uh, served God with conviction, without reservation. They have a remarkable story of being servants of God. And we can learn a lot about serving God from these two. So here we go. First, I serve God by accepting God's plan. Uh, Luke one twenty six. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And you'll notice as we go through this story that they keep repeating this connection with King David. Uh, all the way through, because it's important to understand that Christ is the king. Uh, he, he's the rightful descendant of David. He is the promised ruler of Israel, promised ruler of the world, joy to the world. Uh, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed. Circle those words, confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. I mean, here's a 16-year-old girl who's confronted by an angel, says, you are highly favored, God is with you. I mean, she's confused, she's disturbed, of course she is. She's face-to-face with an angel, he's going to make a startling announcement to her. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor, literally grace, with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom 
will never end. This is not a temporal king who's going to show up and rule for a season. This is going to be an eternal king who's going to reign forever. Now, every Jew understood that there was a Messiah coming. But uh, most of them saw him as a warrior king who would come and throw off the oppression of the Romans. Uh, they didn't see him as an eternal savior king. Uh, in Luke one thirty four, Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? I am a virgin. How can this happen? And she says it almost defensively. Because this culture was intent on protecting the purity of their girls. Chastity, purity, virginity, the sanctity of intimacy within a marriage relationship, those were very high values. And so Mary says, how can this be? I've never known a man. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. Circle that phrase, will be holy. And he will be called the Son of God, for nothing is impossible with God. Jesus' holiness resulted from being conceived by the Holy Spirit, which prevented the inheritance of a sinful nature from Adam. If you'll notice, Scripture never refers to the sin of Eve. It always refers to the sin of Adam. Because Eve was deceived, Adam sinned willfully with his eyes open. Now, I don't know metaphysically how all this works out, but somehow, the Holy Spirit was able to break the sin linkage with Adam by there being no human father in Christ's conception and birth. And even though you know, he explains to Mary how this is going to happen, I mean, I think Mary's still confused. I don't think she's able to gather her thoughts. i got a million questions about this, and Mary doesn't ask a single question. She doesn't look for any explanation. Instead, look at her response. It says, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said come true. I mean, would you say that? Could you say that? I mean, I'm willing to accept whatever happens to me. Have you noticed how angry and upset we get when things don't go our way? When, when something doesn't turn out to our advantage, we think God has been unfair. But here's a 16-year-old girl who is essentially surrendering her life. She's saying, Lord, my life is yours. Use it however you see fit. And she didn't know how this was going to turn out. What has God asked you to do? Does God have a plan for your life that he's called you to? And scripture says God is always speaking, but are we always listening? And I don't believe that a call from God is something that's just for pastors or just for missionaries or just for professional Christians. If you claim the name of Christ, if you have been saved by Christ, you have been saved to serve. God has placed a call of service upon your life. So what is God calling you to do? And will you give up your life, your ideas, your plans to follow his plan, to fulfill his function and purpose for your life? And that's how we're called to live as God's servants. Now, God is not an evil master who asks his servants to do, to do bad things. But the price of serving God is sometimes high. And so... You know, we might say to God, well, God, I, I hear your call on my life, but I need a few assurances that there are a few things I need to know you'll get right. There are a few guarantees that I need from you before I'm going to step forward and do this. Have you ever done something, you thought it was a call from God, and it blew up all over you? Uh, you know, well, that must not have been God's will. Well, who says it wasn't God's will? 
You know, here's Mary, the 16-year-old betrothed virgin who's aware that she would be pregnant and unmarried in a culture that demanded strict morality. I mean, she certainly knows that she's going to be scorned and denounced, maybe even shunned. She might be divorced as well. Yet when God called Mary, she accepted God's plan. She surrendered her life to God to use however he saw fit, without knowing how it would work out. Will you accept God's plan for your life? Submit yourself to his will without any demands, making no, no claims on assurances. I am your servant. Use me. Number two, I also serve God by believing God's word. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, never speaks a word in Scripture, never says a word. Uh, But we can learn a lot about him from his responses. In fact, just like our responses say a lot about us, in fact, our responses probably say more about us than our words say about us. So Matthew 1.19, Joseph, her fiancé, and again, the word in the Greek is much stronger than fiancé. We use fiancé very casually in our day. You know, a lot of times fiancé is a word we use for people who are living together. It's used for a couple who are having sex, but they're not married. The word betrothed is used for, to describe a couple who have made the commitment of marriage, but there hasn't been any physical contact. It's almost like it's the opposite of fiancé. Joseph her betrothed, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement. And again, the word in the Greek there is is stronger than breaking. It's the word he wants to divorce her quietly. Now, when we read this in Scripture all these years later, we know how the story goes. We know how the story ends. But put yourself in the story. Put yourself in Joseph's place. This happened to a young man who had all the aspirations of being married, starting a family. His whole life is before him, and suddenly he thinks his wife has been immoral. She has betrayed him. And sexual unfaithfulness during betrothal was considered adultery. Under the Mosaic law, it was punishable by stoning. But during Joseph's time, stoning for adultery was not mandatory. He had had two other options. One is he could charge Mary with adultery in court, She'd be convicted in front of the community and publicly shamed. Or he could write a private bill of divorce with just two or three witnesses and end their relationship, no public humiliation. And that's the one that Joseph was wanting to choose. Now his action showed some compassion for Mary. He doesn't want to publicly disgrace her. But he was also taking steps to preserve his righteousness. Because if he uh, marries Mary... It's going to implicate him as the other party. Uh, you know, by marrying Mary, Joseph would share in her guilt, share in her shame. In the eyes of the community, he would be just as bad as she is. They, they both would have been scorned as unrighteous people. So here's what happens, Matthew one twenty. As he considered this, divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in that day, there were a lot of boys who were named Jesus. Uh, The name in the Hebrew is uh, Jesus, or actually Yeshua, Joshua would be a, a good translation. Very common name, very special meaning. 
When you named a, a, a boy Jesus, it, it had a hopeful expectation about God sending a Messiah, a king who would save them from oppression. I mean, this is a hopeful name with high expectation. But the angel revealed to Joseph that this Messiah would deliver people from their sins. Now, forgiveness of sins is a concept that had been talked about by the Old Testament prophets, but everybody overlooked that. When they're looking for the Messiah, they're not disturbed by their sins. They just want somebody to come in and take care of these pesky Romans. They're looking for a physical, financial, political deliverance. And so they would pick and choose the verses that they liked, and they'd ignore the verses that they didn't like. They picked the verses that described this warrior king that they wanted and ignored the verses that described a savior that God was going to send. Do you think we ever do that? Do we pick out the verses that we like and ignore the ones that we don't like? I mean, we like the verses that say that God is supposed to bless us, and, and uh, we like those more than the verses that say we're supposed to serve God and obey Him. And when we do that, we create God in the image that we want Him to be, rather than receiving Him for who He really is. I mean, it's no different then than it is now. You know, they, they, they shaped God the way they wanted him to be and what happens when you create your own expectation of God and then he doesn't measure up you know God's supposed to provide me with this and give me that the house the spouse the kids the car the job God's supposed to make me happy God's supposed to make me healthy what happens when God doesn't do what we have created him to do well we can become frustrated even even angry Because rather than responding humbly to God as a servant, we demand that God serve us. That's upside-down living. It doesn't go well. Matthew 1.22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So now we have two names. We have the name Jesus, which means uh, God saves. And now we have the messianic title, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. One describes what Jesus does. He saves. The other describes who he is. He is God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Now, even though though God miraculously reassured Joseph of Mary's purity through this dream and this angelic encounter, marrying her would still cause him hardship. Because even though he believed what the angel said, nobody else would. I mean, Joseph is going to go to his parents who've arranged this marriage. He's going to go to his best friend who's going to stand up with him at the wedding. He's going to tell the neighbors, the shop owners, tell his co-workers on the job site, hey, it's the Holy Spirit is the father of this child. I mean, who's going to believe him? God ever tell you to do something that you had to do alone? Or you had to stand alone in service of God? Sometimes our fear of other people and what they will think can make us afraid to do the right thing, to do what God has called us to do. I mean, do you see Joseph's faith? you see his character, his obedience here? I mean, Joseph did this on the basis of a dream. I mean, that must have been some dream. I mean, it's not like the dream I have where I can fly. You ever have that one? Or, or the dream where you've you got to go take a final for a college class you forgot to attend. 
I mean, I had that one just this week because it's final season. You know, I hate that one. But Joseph believed what the angel said, and he showed it by acting on it. And I think there had to be times when, when Joseph looked at Jesus and thought, you know, I, I know I had that message from that angel, but this kid just looks like a kid. You believe what God says to you. I would if an angel told me. I would if an angel spoke to me. And we tend to think a lot of angels. But in the creative order, angels are lower than humans. Angels aren't more spiritual than humans. Uh, angels aren't above humans. In fact, angels are just messengers, servants of God. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger of God. Humans don't become angels when they die. Humans are humans and angels are angels. Don't get the two confused. And more importantly, don't confuse angels with the Holy Spirit. I mean, angels are inferior, far inferior to the Holy Spirit. And if you're a believer, if you've been born again, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. And He speaks to you. You ever been spoken to by God? And I don't mean in some kind of weird way. I just mean in a, in a way that's usual. Maybe through a sermon, pastor speaking, and God speaks to your mind. Some of the best messages I've ever preached are often the ones that have nothing to do with what I said. All the people come up, oh, pastor, you know, this just really spoke to my heart, and then they'll tell me something I didn't even say. God was speaking to them. Or maybe you're reading through the Bible, and you're reading and reading and reading, and suddenly a verse just kind of lights up off the page, and you hear from God. You ever heard from God like that? I mean, that's more supernatural than an angel showing up. But we like the spectacular. You know, there's, there's nothing more spectacular than the God of creation speaking to you directly by His Spirit or through His Word. And the question is, when God spoke to you, did you do what He told you to do? And that verse exploded before you. Did you act on it? Because we can hear God speak into our lives. We can read verses in the Bible and still hold it at arm's length. We can say, well, God, thank you for the suggestion. Let me think this over and I'll get back to you. You know, if that's your approach, you wouldn't make a very good Joseph. Because Joseph had nothing but risk and no promise of a reward. And he did it anyway. Number three, I serve God by trusting God's guidance. Luke 2, 2, at that time the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his betrothed, his fiancée, who is now obviously pregnant. Scripture tells us that the Messiah had to be born from the tribe of Judah, he had to be from the line of David, and he had to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. How did Jesus wind up being born in Bethlehem? Well, it's not because Mary and Joseph wanted him to be born there or they connived to have him born there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because the sovereign God of the universe moved the heart of a pagan Roman emperor to order Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem. 
And Joseph obeyed the angel and did what he said. Joseph obeyed the law and did what he was told. Joseph was just a God-honoring, law-abiding citizen. And as he did that, God's plan was worked out in his life. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now here's the point. We do what we can do. And then we just rely on God to do what only God can do. You know, when we trust God and obey Him, He works in us and through us to fulfill His plan. But our part is not the results. The results are God's responsibility. Our part is just faithful obedience. You know, most of the difficult seasons, most of the messes that you go through in your life are more about what God is doing in you than the results that you are achieving. You know, we we are very results-oriented. God is oriented toward our character. We want to be happy and successful. God wants us to be holy. And so whatever's happening in your life, especially the distressing, difficult, disturbing things, those are about what God is doing in your character. And God will work in us and through us to carry out his plan. And the Roman emperor didn't know he was fulfilling God's prophecy. He just wanted his tax money. But God controls the heart of the king. God can work through unbelieving people, even in your life. Sometimes we think we're a slave to our boss, or we think we're controlled by the president or Congress, or we're controlled by our spouse or by our ex-spouse. But God is the one who's in control. And how much different would you view your life if you recognize that God is in control all the time? The problem is we judge how much God is in control by how well things are working out for us. But trust in God does not mean that everything or even anything is going to be easy. You know, I'd vote for this health, wealth, prosperity gospel. But I don't see any evidence of it in Scripture. You know, we keep going to God like He's some kind of vending machine or genie when we ought to be worshiping and serving Him as the Creator, Lord, Savior that He is. I mean, let me tell you how hard this was for Mary and even Joseph. You know, Mary, at this point, she's full-term pregnant. She's riding on the back of a donkey for 80 miles. You know, our two kids, first two kids, went uh, went full-term. Uh, Katie uh, had 13 hours of pushing contractions with Andrew. He waited until he was born just after midnight so he could be born on his due date. When Ryland came nine years later, uh, Katie had spent so much time in labor in the hospital with Andrew that she determined that she was going to stay at home through labor as long as she possibly could. And so I remember we were out here west of Belton on Highway 58 headed up to St. Joseph Hospital And we got out there, and we had to stop and wait for a train. And it was one of those long, long, long coal trains. And I remember thinking, this kid's going to be born in the back seat of this (laughs) Valari. We finally get to the hospital. 20 minutes later, Ryland shows up right on his due date. Our youngest, Alandria, her due date was a little after Christmas. Actually, I think January 3rd was her due date. And she came early. She came three days before Christmas because she heard that her doctor wanted to go to Hawaii for Christmas. And so that's just how kind she is. So she showed up early. 
Uh, you know, but kids love to hear about their births. I mean, I, rem- I love to hear my mom talking about me being born. I was born in 1955. According to my mom, that was the hottest summer since 36. I was born in August. She'd tell me all the details. I love to hear that story. And your kids probably do too. And I just imagine Mary and Joseph telling Jesus all about his birth, the donkey ride and the stable and all that stuff. And Joseph just lays out the story and Jesus looks at him and says, I know. I planned it that way. You know, trusting God does not mean everything or even anything will be easy. You know, Mary rode that donkey, delivered that baby away from family, no friends, uh, there was no clean, comfortable place. She's attended only by her young husband-to-be, a guy who barely uh, knew her, who was scared to death himself. I mean, that's the Christmas story. We tend to romanticize it, but it's more of a horror film, okay? And God expects us to obey by doing what we can do, and then we just trust him to do what only he can do. You know, you can't forgive sins, but you can confess them. And when you confess them, God will forgive them. It's real hard for you to restore a relationship because it takes two people to restore a relationship. But you can do your part. You can apologize. You can offer forgiveness. And then you trust God to do his part in restoring the relationship. We do what we can do. We trust God to do what only he can do. Number four. I serve God by relying on God's provision. Remember, the wise men have come, and uh, that's about two years later. Jesus and Mary and Joseph lived in Bethlehem for about two years. The wise men show up, and, uh, and so uh, this, is, this is the setting now. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. And so now Joseph and Mary and this young boy uh, travel 90 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt in order to protect the child entrusted to them from this murderous King Herod. So now put yourself in Joseph's place. I mean, he's got a child that's not his with a wife that he'd suspected of of infidelity. He's been spoken to by an angel a couple of times, and he has had to totally rearrange his life. I mean, he's a young man trying to get started in life. He probably wanted to establish a home. He wanted to get busy about the work of being a a, a builder. Uh, He wanted to support his family, get on with life, but he couldn't. Instead of building a home... Joseph had to move outside of his home, leave his homeland for about two years and wait until Herod died. Matthew 2.13, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. You know, when coming out of Egypt, Joseph wanted to go back to Judea where he'd started to establish a life. But instead he had to go to Nazareth in order to uh, 
avoid this wicked king. I mean, nothing is easy or convenient for these guys. You know, they're, they're, they just moved and lived wherever God directed them because they needed to protect this child that was in their care. Joseph and Mary surrendered their personal dreams about their life together in order to serve God's purpose, in order to follow God's direction, and they had to rely on God to protect and provide for them and to provide for this child. Has God given you an assignment, an a, a calling that requires you to give up on your own plans, your preferences, your choice in where to live or how to make a living in order for you to fulfill his purpose? You know, Mary and Joseph were committed servants of God, and they showed it by accepting God's plan, believing God's word, trusting God's guidance, and relying on God's provision. Imagine if Mary or Joseph would have said no to God. You know, God's plan wouldn't have been thwarted, stymied, or even delayed. Herod, Pharaoh, the devil, they've all tried that. God's plan would have been fulfilled. It's just that Mary and Joseph would have missed out. God would have just used someone else. Mary would have said no. Instead of singing, Mary, did you know, we could be singing, Ruby, did you know? Instead of talking about Joseph the carpenter, we might be talking about Roscoe the tent maker. But Mary and Joseph didn't say no to God. They said yes. And for them, that made all the difference. And it'll make all the difference for you too. What is God calling you to do? I mean, you look at this young couple. I mean, God, his call on their life was intensely personal. It affected their marriage. It affected their family. It affected their, their profession. It affected where they lived. With Mary, it affected her very body. Deeply personal call that God placed on their life. And they said, yes. What will you say? Let's pray together. Maybe you're here today and God's placing a call on your life. He's asking you to come and to trust him, to become his child, to become his servant. In this moment, the quietness of this moment, I would invite you just to open your heart and life to him and just say yes. Accept his plan for your life. Believe him, obey him, trust him. Let him take care of the details. It may not be easy, but it will be glorious. As God works through you to accomplish his will. Father, I would pray you'd help each of us to surrender our lives to you and to become your servants. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.